So awesome, right? What a great way to start. Um, yeah. Thank you. Love it. Hi. Hey, hi. Hey. Hi, hi. Um, so this week's homework, you did a little jumping around, didn't you? A little bit. Um, it was a history lesson. I sort of warned you, but maybe didn't fully warn you. Uh, but I want you to know this, and I've told your small group leaders to throw me under the bus as much as they would like, but that was the most jumping around and the most, um, probably the most content you're going to hit over the course of a week, but I just needed you to just get this glimpse, you know, history, you know, it was a history lesson. And who loves history? Really? That's weird. Okay, cool. (laughs) Good. Then somebody's going to be listening today. Today we're going to have a history lesson. Um, We're going to talk about the history of King Solomon. And I'm going to walk through, I'm going to run through, we're going to sprint through history together. Um, But before we start, I felt like there was something that I needed to address. It was really important. And I have a slide. It's just a super important symbol that we all need to... Okay, now, come on, right? You're welcome. This is church, America's team, God's team, right? (laughs) Those of you that don't care about football, bless your heart. (laughs) Bless your heart. Um, Seriously, though, I I was thinking about history, and I was laughing because um, (laughs) my mom is is here, but she's a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. In fact, the last game I watched with her, she had a jersey on, and I'm like, that's serious, I'm a huge Dallas Cowboys fan, okay? And, and I've been a Dallas Cowboys fan since, some of you might know this, in the olden days, like McDonald's had these posters. Do you know where I'm going with this? Some of you, you're like, how old are you? <laughs> you could go to McDonald's, my mom knows, you could go to McDonald's and you could buy a poster of the whole team. And my little brother and I would sit on the floor and we'd like memorize their names. Like we're huge Dallas Cowboys fans. And then I have this son. I have a son who's, it's hard to imagine that he was born in 99. So he's like old now, you know, like a real adult with a real job and everything. And he is a huge Dallas Cowboys fan too. But see, each of us have huge fandom, but we have very different histories with the team, right? (laughs) You know, like my mom, my mom has seen all the Super Bowls. You know, there was two in the 70s with with Tom Landry and Roger Staubach, right? Amen. Awesome. Awesome. For people like me, you know, who was born in the 90s. I was not born. No. It's always good to bring people that bring you back down to earth. I was absolutely not born in the 90s, but I got to live through those three incredible Super Bowl wins, right? Two against Buffalo and then one against Pittsburgh, and it was Troy Aikman and Jimmy Johnson. You know the whole thing, right? So there's five amazing Super Bowls, but you know what my son has? Nothing. <laughs> He, he told me one day, because we hadn't really thought about the numbers before, and I went and looked it up. The, the Dallas Cowboys have three playoff wins, wins from the years 1998 to 2023. Three. He was like born in 99. And so I forget sometimes that he doesn't have that history. Um, but however, he, you know, he has the year of disappointments, the 2000s, you know, all these disappointments. But now he's just, he's hanging in there and he's hopeful. But it's funny, right? We all have different histories. Well, when I sat down and, and wrote this lesson, um, I, I prayed that y'all wouldn't hate me, but I also felt like it was important. In the, in the, in the workbook, remember where I talked about my kid who had just graduated from high school and I was making him open the, the cards, not just rip through you know, all the gifts, because he needed to know who it was from. Well, that's what history does, right? It gives us a from, 
tells us what the context is, how we can build a foundation. So next week, when you walk into Ecclesiastes, you're going to be able to go, oh, yeah, I know this guy. I know his words. I know where he's coming from, okay? So history matters. Um, it's funny, as I was sitting and working on this, uh, my husband walked in and he goes, I, I was like, oh man, I gotta cover so much ground and First Kings and all this stuff. And he's like, why do you wanna know all that history about Solomon? Why not just read the book? You know? And I'm like, that's a good question. Why do we wanna know? Why do we wanna know all this history? Well, I feel like, now and when we get to the end of this, you tell me, but I feel like God has something to say about himself. God has something to teach us about his character, even through this timeline of a life of this King Solomon, okay? So while you haven't opened Ecclesiastes yet, you have spent some time in the Old Testament. So I am gonna start us in 1 Kings, and we're gonna start with a history lesson. We're gonna look at King Solomon, who was the star of the show, right, this week. We're gonna talk about the promise keeper, God, and then we're gonna talk about the promise kept, Okay, the promise kept. So King Solomon, history lesson. Um, if you did your homework, you know some of these things, but I'm just gonna brush up with you a little bit because it was a lot of information. Um, Solomon is the king of Israel, right? The United Kingdom of Israel. That's what we know him as. However, before Solomon was his dad. And who was his dad? King David, right. And then before David, that was David's life is in First and Second Samuel. If you want to go and read about him, he's a fascinating, amazing character in the Bible. And then before David, though, there was another king, and his name was Saul. Yeah, Saul. He was the first king. So Saul, and, and you can go and read in, in First Samuel and see about Saul. But you know what's interesting about Saul? This is just a little side note. The reason God started the whole king's thing with his people is because you know what they did? This is a whole Bible lesson for another time. You know what they did? They came to God because they were not happy because they were comparing all the different kingdoms that were not God's people. And they were like, well, they have kings and they have kings. So like, hey God, we want kings. And he's like, you're gonna regret this. But he gave them what they wanted. Isn't that a lesson? So he gave them what they wanted. So through the kings, there's a lot of messy stuff that happens in, in, in the kings that follow after Solomon, it gets a lot messier before it gets better, I assure you. But that's the progression, okay? So it started with Saul, then there was David, now we're at Solomon, and that's the author of Ecclesiastes, okay? I read this by one Bible scholar. I thought it was a, a good way to start thinking about this. He said this, that God starts with his people where they are. If they cannot cope with his highest way, well, then he carves out a lower one. When they do not respond to the spirit of Yahweh or when all sorts of spirits lead them into anarchy, he provides. He gives the institutional safeguard of earthly rulers, of kings, okay? Wasn't his intended way, but he's gonna give them what they asked for. It's a lower way. Sometimes God permits institutions that are not part of his eternal purpose and the monarchs of Israel is one of the most glaring examples, the kings, okay? So God is gonna, his, his, his plan is not gonna be thwarted because of these guys, but he's gonna allow the consequences and gonna allow this thing to happen the way people wanted it to happen, okay? Well, there's a couple things about King Solomon that I want us to hit and I know you covered a lot of it in your homework, so I'm gonna move quickly. But I, I thought there was a few words that described him that I thought we could just, we could pause on for a minute. And the first word is this, chosen. 
that he was chosen by God. You covered that in your homework when you read 1 Kings um, 1, verses 32 through 46. I even made you draw things, I'm pretty sure. (laughs) But we know that he was chosen by God, that he was installed essentially by God before David even died. I think about this, like um, when you look at the whole of, of all of this life, you can go through the entirety of 1 Kings, I think it starts one chapter, one through 11 or something, and it's all this stuff about Solomon that you study that we're gonna throw together really quickly here. And so this particular part is talking about how he's chosen. In, in 1 Chronicles 22, 6 through 10, we realize it all started with God's words to David. Do you remember that? God's words to David, okay? Before any of the king stuff happened, King David talking to God. And then he called Solomon his son. This is verse six. And he charged him to build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel. David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house in the name of the Lord, but the word of the Lord came to me and said, hey, David, you've shed too much blood. So behold, a son shall be born to you who by him will be a man of rest. Do you remember David? I mean, do you remember Solomon's name, what it means? Shalom, right? Peace. So God's telling him all of this before Solomon's even toddling on the floor, okay? He goes on to tell him about Solomon for his name shall be Solomon and I will give him peace and quiet to Israel in all of his days. He shall build a house for my name. He shall be my son, and I will be his father, and I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. He was chosen. He was the third and last king of a united kingdom. Remember I said that Saul was first, then there's David, then there's Solomon. Well, Solomon is essentially the third king, but he's the last one of a united kingdom. And and there's a lot of prophecy, and, and God tells him this, that, you know, Solomon makes mistakes, and so he says, you know, the kingdom is gonna be split in half, and your descendants are gonna be fighting for their part of it. But while Solomon was alive, it was all united. So he's essentially the last king of the whole of Israel, okay? That's interesting. He's mentioned 300 times in the Old Testament, 12 times in the New Testament, and he reigned for 40 years. We say that he was chosen, and it's something it's important to remember that David was his father, King David. Bathsheba was his mother, okay? And that whole thing started out in a very sordid tale, right? Solomon was the second son of David and Bathsheba. The first son died, lived six days, I think. He was the 10th son of David overall. This is why I think it's so interesting that he was chosen by God. You see, he being the 10th son would have been a very unlikely person to take over the kingship. There were 19 named sons by David in all, 19. We say named because the first son of David and Bathsheba was never named. There's also some discrepancy about some other potential sons or potential um, children. He had one daughter as well. And I mentioned he's chosen by God and see, here's another reason we know it. You know, David had a whole bunch of sons, just mentioned 19 or so. At one point, Adonijah, who was his fourth son, so he's higher up the ladder, you know, actually had a plan to set out to kill David to take over the throne. He was eventually executed by King Solomon for his attempts to steal the throne. But see, all of this was God's plan. God had Solomon there on purpose for his purposes. The other word that I thought was interesting about King Solomon is he was really wise. That's an understatement, right? We're gonna learn, we're gonna hear so much about wisdom over the next few weeks 
because Ecclesiastes is essentially considered a wisdom book, a philosophical collection of wisdom. We know that in 1 Kings chapter three, that he prays, he has a prayer for wisdom that God says to him, what do you want? And he asks for wisdom, right? In 1 Kings 4, 29 through 30, it results in his fame and, and a voice that, that's gonna produce 3,000 proverbs and over 1,000 songs. And I love that, uh, that God goes on, to say, goes on to say this, that, and God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like sand on the seashore. All a gift from God, Right? Among so many other things, Solomon was like reading, um, it, was, it was just like reading into all of the things that God wants us to understand, but yet we realize it came from a really flawed guy, right? And here's why. There's a bunch of other things that Solomon was. He was a peacemaker, he was a worshiper, he was a builder, he was a provider. However, through those things, through those titles, we start to see the drift, do you remember when we talked about that in the homework? I talked about, I think it was Hebrews chapter two, verse one warns us, therefore we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. This gets personal, doesn't it? Because I think about Solomon and I'm like, oh, these cool names. He was chosen, he was wise, he was a peacemaker. And he, he did all these things and his name was Shalom for heaven's sakes. And then he was a worshiper, had all these great beginnings, you know? And God said, David, you're not gonna build my temple. Solomon, you are. And you're like, oh yeah, it's gonna be so good. And then he drifts, right? All those things. Um, he had a well-documented life of drifting, he started out innocent and safe, but little by little, he drifted away from what God had intended for his life. Little by little. It never happens like just in one big right turn, does it? Um, when I was in high school uh, and in college, I was a lifeguard. Yeah, did you feel safe? Would you feel real safe if I was lifeguarding you? It was more about snacks and getting a tan, but that's the whole thing. Um, I was okay, I did all right. They train you though. I did pay attention because I'm a rule follower, so there's that. But in lifeguard training, has anybody ever been a lifeguard in here? Okay, I like that. Proud lifeguard hand goes up. Here's what you know, you know this. If someone falls in, like a kiddo falls in and, and they're struggling and they can't stand up and they're essentially you know, potentially drowning, but they're not like way out in the middle of the deep end and they're like right there by the side, what do you think you're supposed to do? Do you know? I remember because I was a good lifeguard. You remember too, I know you do. You don't lean over. You don't lean over and grab them out. You don't jump in even. You, you try to avoid jumping in at all costs. Why? Because they take you down, yeah. And so a good lifeguard would do this. If there's a kiddo off the side and they're drowning and what you wanna do is get low and you wanna lay down on the ground and either reach your arm out or reach your leg out and then swing it back over, do you follow me? Because if you stand over someone who is drowning, they will pull you in because of gravity. I've never forgotten that because I think that's what we see happening in Solomon's story. Like we see him, you know, and he's kind of starting to like hang out in the pool and he's kind of going under sorta, but like just kind of by the side. But then all of a sudden he's going down. And then all of a sudden all the other people that are dragging him down are pulling him under and he's drifting, right? Upon closer investigation, yeah, he was a peacemaker. However, 
he started this way. It started with marriages, okay? So like um, David was, was his father, made peace by fighting. He was a warrior, okay? Solomon made peace by marriage alliances and treaties and smart things, you know, I would think. That seems smart. Like in um, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, we see the beginning of the drift when it comes to being a peacemaker. You see, it starts out with Pharaoh giving his daughter over as a bride, but then it ends with David having 700 wives and princesses and 300 concubines. I don't think that's what God had intended. The drift, right? The sinking, the getting pulled under. I think about this too, you know, he was a peacemaker and yet do you realize, I did not realize this, that in 1 Kings 9, 16, you know what we learn? We learn that the people with which he built the temple and the, and the palace and all that were slaves. I mean, they have a, or a history. You know, the Israelites have a history. You know, you ever watch Moses and the, you know, around Easter, Charlton Heston, and all that stuff, right? They were slaves. And yet he, he seems to have forgotten that and uses slave labor. 1 Kings 9, 16 says this, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezar and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites with whom he lived in the city. I'm sorry, that was the wrong verse. But okay, let me back up. What I want you to know here is that instead of the slave thing, we're gonna get to that. But what I want you to understand here is that he had given, he had had all these dowries provided with these wives, but they were giving wedding gifts of death and destruction. Okay, bad stuff. So you got death and destruction and you know what's coming when I talk about him being a builder is that he also was enslaving people. Well, then he was a worshiper. He was a worshiper and that seems really fantastic, doesn't it? We want our king to be a worshiper of the one true God, amen? In 1 Kings 3, verses three through four, we see particular references to him sacrificing offerings on the high places, now, let me explain this because this got confusing to me. So maybe this will help you. In Numbers chapter 32, verse 52. Numbers 32, 33:52. I'm gonna read it out loud. This was God setting the rules, okay? So Numbers is like a lot of rules. So this is God setting the rules about the high places and about worshiping idols, okay? Listen to this. Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. It's like, it's like God knew, <laughs> you know? It's like he knew that a rule needed to be laid out because what was coming was the drift, you know? What was coming was, was the sinking, Solomon starts out worshiping in the high places in a good way. Let me explain that because this confused me, okay? So just stay with me. I'm gonna read what I found in this commentary. I thought it was well said, so stay with me. It says, in 2 Chronicles 1, we are told that Solomon early in his reign worshiped at a high place. Verse three reads that Solomon and the whole assembly went to the high place at Gibeon for God's tent of the meeting was there, which Moses, the Lord's servant, had made in the wilderness. Okay, pause. So at the time when, when Solomon is taking over, that God had provided this whole plan for where his presence would dwell with his people, okay? And at the time, they were wanderers, right? They were led by Moses. So they were going through the wilderness. They were moving and going. And so God had created this whole plan, very detailed, kind of like the plan that you saw detailed with the, with the palace and the temple, 
okay? Very detailed how he wanted that to be constructed, how it was to move, how all these rules, okay? So this is what he's talking about here. See, because we know that, that Solomon is to be the one that's gonna build the temple, the temple that's gonna have walls and a ground and stay put, you know? He's gonna be replacing this moving temple, if you will, okay? So stay with me. The text is clear that for some, that the reason that Solomon worshiped at the high place, that, that verse I just read you in 2 Chronicles, was that the tabernacle, which was this moving thing, okay, the tent that was moving, was located there. This was the same tabernacle that the children of Israel under Moses' leadership had constructed in the wilderness. And prior to the construction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which Solomon would be in charge of, right? The tabernacle was the place God had chosen for worship. Okay, so early on, he went up to the high places because that's where God's presence was and that's where he would worship, okay? However, tiny little steps moving in the direction of sinfulness led him to the end of 1 Kings chapter 11, verse seven, where we see that he built high places for Chemosh. That was a, a God of the Moabites for his foreign wives. See, God knew this was coming, right? So it started with true worship and it ended with pleasing other people and getting pulled into the deep end and choosing to worship idols. Well, builder, I mentioned that before. He was a builder, right? It started out as being obedient to God's will, right? He was doing what God said. He was gonna build this temple. In 1 Kings 6 through 8, we see all those details. You went through some of it in your homework. It happened during the fourth year of his reign. It took seven years to build the temple, right? Details, it was really ornate. It was really elegant and really fantastic and beautiful. It was permanent, right? Versus the tent that was moving around. But it ends this way. It ends with him creating a dedication to self and wealth, right? Did you see that? Like, wasn't that so interesting? Like, I may be, I, I think I'm, I'm on track here when I see that God gives us all these details about, about the temple and all these details about the palace, and I do not think it's an accident, amen? How long did it take to build the palace? 13 years. How long did it take to build the temple? Seven why do you think? I don't know, maybe just a statement, but it's possibly an indictment of where his focus was. I believe that he started out with a noble idea to try to satisfy what God wanted for him. And he drifted away into something that was more about him and things and pleasing than about God. Anybody relate? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> I mentioned before, 1 Kings 9, 15, that's where we see that there was slave labor used in many of these building projects. You see, he had totally drifted off of what God had planned. I mentioned before, he was a provider. Well, it started out that he was providing and being a steward, you know, but it ended with excessive overtaking and controlling and dominating. In your homework, you read in Deuteronomy about how people would get comfy with wealth and excess, lest you forget. Remember that term? Well, in Deuteronomy 17, God himself warns future kings. And listen to this, if this isn't prophetic, like what you know already, we could leave right here. Listen to this prophecy that was coming before King Solomon was on the scene. In Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17, it goes like this. Think about our guy, okay? 
When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and you dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. Remember the people? They said, we want a king. He said, all right, cool. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose, one from among you and from your brothers. And it goes on in verse 16. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Verse 17, this is where I put a big star. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Solomon violated every one of these laws directly, didn't he? But I don't think he started that way. Do you? I don't. I think he started out like the little baby where they were looking at him and they're like, shalom. You know, it started wonderfully. God loved him. Well, God loved him still. And God used him. And we're going to see that through the book of Ecclesiastes. But what can Solomon's history give us besides context and background? I believe that we can learn that our failures are never the final word. Amen. Who's happy to hear that? Yeah. Our failures are never the final word. Man, we're, we got a guy who's full of them. I think about this. Um, years ago in my iPhone, like, you know how you have all those notes in there? You people that have that other phone, I don't know. I'm sure you have notes too. I can't. You people with the green text, I don't get you. I don't understand. Anyway, I'm kidding. I don't. It's not, it's, it's fine. Anyway, so there's a notes thing. And I always like, I have the funniest notes. Like I'll, I'll be just at, at Kroger and I'll be like, Bible note, King Solomon, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, what is, where am I? I got that at Kroger. Okay, cool, God, thanks. But I write all these notes and years ago, and I left it because I just, I don't even know when I wrote it, but it, I mean, it was like really long time ago, like 2012 or something, this note way back. And the only thing it says is this, God wastes nothing no context, nothing. And I'm like, I, I left it and I love it. And I look at it every now and then I'm like, I feel like that's God just giving me that personal little love letter. Like, hey, sister, you think Solomon's bad? You're bad, but I don't waste anything. Amen. He wastes nothing. Well, we talked a lot about Solomon, King Solomon. Let's talk about the promise keeper. That's the best part. The promise keeper. Um, I want to go back in time again for just a minute. Um, and it's important because it's going to help you understand the gravity of our King Solomon and what God's doing through his life, okay? The promise keeper. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Write that down on your paper. You may never go back, but just jot it down. 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 17, Okay. When we talk about God as a promise keeper, there was, some, there was a lot of promises, okay? And it's fun. It's like a treasure hunt to go through God's word and find promises because so many of them are to us. But there was this one particular promise that he made to David, okay? And they, we call it the Davidic covenant. You may have heard there's an Abraham covenant. There's all covenants, okay? But this one is the Davidic covenant. And we're gonna talk about that because there's purpose with our guy, Solomon, Okay. What you can know is this covenant, this conversation with God and David came through the prophet Nathan. And I always like to clarify this because I did not know this. Like the great theologian Google taught me this. The difference between a priest and a prophet, do you know what it is? It's okay if you don't. Google told me too. Um, a priest 
is a person, okay, just a person who's speaking on behalf of people to God, okay? Talking to God on behalf of people. A prophet is a person speaking to people on behalf of God, okay? So the prophet, what you'll see through these kings is often you'll see a lot of prophets, Old Testament's full of them. There's a whole bunch, some major, minor, all of these prophets. And they are getting this, this divine message from God. And then God says, hey, go tell people, go tell the king, go tell. Okay, so that's what's happening here. So Nathan is telling David, hey, God and I chatted. This is what he wants you to know, okay? And he made a promise. But here's what's cool about a covenant. A covenant's bigger than a promise. It's more. You know, I heard covenant described this way one time, loved it. A covenant is like God's job description signed and notarized. He's a promise keeper. Like that's his job description. He wants to be that for you. So this Davidic covenant promised three specific things, okay? It promised that there would be a place, always a place for God's people. Because remember I told you they were in slavery for a while. Charlton Heston brought them out. Then they wandered in the desert, right? Now they got a place, okay? They would have a place forever, okay? And that, that actually, just a little side note, Bible nerd thing, that reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant as well, okay? And the Mosaic covenant, it reaffirms all that. We're gonna have a place and it's always gonna be a place for you. The second thing that covenant said was that David's son would be blessed and we'd be the builder of the temple, okay? Remember that? Remember that conversation there that, that David wasn't gonna get to be the builder of the temple, that it would be his son, Solomon, okay? So that's the second part of that covenant. The third part is this, that David's kingdom, his throne, essentially, as a king, would be established forever. Would be established forever. What do we learn from, from just this one little piece of, of incredible promise-keeping history? Here's what we know about the promise keeper. His promises rest solely on his faithfulness. His promises rest solely on his faithfulness. Listen, I don't know if you needed to hear that today, but I needed it to hear that. Hear that. I needed to be reminded that God's not just sitting up there twiddling his thumbs waiting to see if Chris is gonna screw up again because, spoiler, she is. You are, we are, we are sinful, fallible people and God's promises are not contingent upon us. That's what's a covenant, a covenant is not, hey, if you do this part, then I, a covenant is I'm God, I'm gonna do my part. I hope you join me, amen? The promise keeper. God's promises rest solely on his faithfulness. Listen, the, the last thing I wanna cover before we close up and head out of here is this. The promise kept. I mean, there's a lot of kept promises in the word and there's a lot of promises that will be kept. But there is one that you need to understand as we walk into Ecclesiastes. All the things that Solomon was, all the things he learned, all the things he had, he still fell short, right? He couldn't do it. And that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is. Don't not come back. Come back. Just because I told you the whole, po the whole point of the book. The whole point of the book is that you cannot do it alone. And Solomon knew this. You see, in Solomon falling short, 
the kingdom had to still be secure, right? Because if this is God's promise, look above at the Davidic covenant, God says his kingdom will be secure. All these things are gonna happen. Well, if Solomon failed so miserably, then what on earth is gonna happen? God's a promise keeper. Remember his promises are based solely on his faithfulness, not on Solomon. So what does that mean? It means that someone has to come and make up for it. In 1 Kings 11, verses 11 through 13, listen to these words. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statues, as statutes as I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the sons of your hand, I mean, out of your, the hands of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. You see, a succession of imperfect kings could never ever fulfill God's promise. So if God were true to his word and he kept his promise in 2 Samuel 7 that I just read, he would have to raise up a righteous, obedient son to take of David to take the throne, amen? Because God's a promise keeper, he doesn't lie. So he's gonna make this happen. You know where I'm going. Consider the fact that Israel's two greatest kings fell, okay? They fell far short of a standard that God had set for them, for a savior, but if God's promises to David, promises of an eternal kingdom through the offspring of David, remember, we just talked about that, are to be fulfilled, it couldn't be by mere men. No matter how great they had, they could be. No matter how many things they had, no matter how much wisdom they gathered. Amen? Israel wanted a king and they got one and then they got another and then they got another. But the only king who will ever fulfill God's promises and our hopes is God himself. God's promise to David were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, we talked about prophets and priests. Jesus was both, but you know what else he was? He's the king, is the king. Solomon's failures and shortcomings didn't get, the way, didn't get in the way of God's ultimate plan or his promise. And neither do ours, you know? If God has a plan, yeah, you might, you might turn the, 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 the path a little ways because you, know, you, you make some mistakes, but I assure you, he is not sitting around waiting to see if you're gonna screw up his plan. He knows what he's doing. He's God, very good at it. I think um, about this quickly and then I'm gonna close up. Um, back in the olden days, when my daughter Maya, she's 20 now, so she knows everything. She's brilliant. <laughs> She really is pretty brilliant. She's pretty incredible. But back in the olden days when she was really little, she, you know, I feel like therapy bills will all go back to this one incident, okay? Let me tell you what it is. It's very tragic, so hang on to your hats. She was like three-ish or something, just very short. I don't remember, small. And I remember that, that my son, who was a little bit older, had, was in school and he came home with, okay, teachers, if you're a teacher, I'm just gonna say it. What's with the oil pastels? Like, let's not make that a school supply. Let's just not. So he had oil pastels. Do you know what those are? They're like angry, aggressive crayons. Very, like stains everything, okay? 
So my little three-year-old short daughter, you know, finds one and I'll never forget it. She found this oil pastel and she, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say that I am pretty sure it was her because the height, there was some scribbling on the wall with the oil pastel, okay? So that happened and I'm like, okay, I gotta be a parent and go deal with this. So I go find her and everything and I go find her and everything. I'm hey, you, did you draw on the wall? She has the thing in her hand. She's like, no. Like, what is that? This is the beginning of sinful nature, right? I'm like, this is it. This is how we're born. She's like, no, mommy, no. And I'm like, well, what's in your hand? Nothing. She drops it. And so I don't really know what to do now because I'm thinking I got to figure out parenting. So I'm like, okay. So she leaves and she goes in the other room and I find her like in there hiding because I'm trying to figure out, well, how do we do, what do we discipline a three-year-old? I don't know what to do. She goes in the other room. She's like hiding in her room. And later on that night um, when we were praying at bed, I remember uh, we were praying and I said, hey, hey, you know, because it was traumatic. Like, seriously, she still talks about like, you were so mean. I'm like, I was, I didn't know what to do. I just ask you questions. <laughs> but later that night we were praying in bed and I remember her um, saying, I, I said, Maya, I love you so much, you know. Mommy, you so mad about the, you so mad about the coloring on the wall. I'm so sorry, mommy, I'm so sorry. I'm like, I, I love you. I forgive you, you know. And then she goes into this. I'll never forget. Even when I draw on the wall. I'm like, <laughs> little pastels. Yes. Even when you draw on the wall. And then she said, even if I hide from you. Even if you hide from me. And then she said, even though I told a lie, which that was, you know, that was the big parenting moment, right? Like the lie part, not the color. And I said, even, even though you told a lie, I love you. I think about Solomon I think about God. I think about how he is the God of the even when, even if, even though, you know, that he doesn't look at us and, and he, he loves us. Whether we're holding the crayon behind our back or whether we're hiding, we can't hide far enough away. He's still there, you know? When you think through all of this, I want you to remember this. And you've heard this, uh, and we just came off of Christmas, so I know you've heard this. In Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33, just listen to this and see if this makes any sense to you about the promise kept. So the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Listen, you will become pregnant, give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. Promise kept, right? Our failures are never the final word. God's promises rest solely on his faithfulness, not you, not me. And he's the God of even when, even if, and even though. Now that you've had your history lesson and you've read the from, uh, next week you're gonna dive into Solomon's words of wisdom. And I hope that you will remember what our Solomon has lived through and experienced and think about when he's speaking from this, from this later period in life, looking back on all of this and saying, please trust me, don't do what I did. Run after God. I hope you'll listen. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, for, the, for keeping promises. We thank you that, man, we, we just thank you so much that you don't sit around and wait on us 
to be the God of the covenant, to be the God who sends Jesus Christ while we're sinners, while we're wrecked and messy, God. You don't wait for us to clean up and fix it. So thank you. And we love you so much. And, and, and we thank you for not editing out all the ugly. You know, I, I thank you so much that I get to look at Solomon's life and King David's life and I can see the mess of it all because I can see the brilliance and the beauty of you through it. And so Father, I pray that our lives are the same way, that we are always, always pointing to you. And um, in all things, we thank you for your son. It's in his name that we pray, amen.